Hey everyone, this is that guest host in Hutch, Jackson Swearer, on that podcast in Hutch. Jason couldn't be here this week, so I get to fill in and have the pleasure of sitting down with one of the brightest young minds in Hutchinson. Dave Sotelo is currently serving as the Human Relations Officer for the city. I'll be chatting with him about the work of the Human Relations Commission and also about his personal journey to where he is today. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. You're sometimes referred to as the HRO, but I think when people hear HR, they usually think about human resources, dealing with things like payroll, performance reviews, and personnel policies, but you do something completely separate from that, right? So can you tell us what human relations means and what you do in your role? Yeah, I, I want to go back to your intro, though. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the brightest, one of the, what did you say there? Oh, I was just saying nice. Something okay, nice. yeah. Brightest young minds of Hutchinson. We're competing on that one, uh, Jackson. No, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't want, I want people to know that I don't buy into that, but that's whatever. Um, moving on, HRO, AHR, they're confusing terms. And we've kind of been thinking about that. Um, because usually people will say the human resources guy or the human relations, human resources office. It's confusing. And we do have an HR department and a human resource director at the city of Hutchinson in the building, Um, but this is different. And if you look back in 70s uh, and the history of kind of where this came about really the fbi had a community relations office and they have um, an office and a handbook on how to run this type of things and the idea is to reduce and investigate discrimination um, in your community and so you know nationally we have the eeoc that investigates uh, employment discrimination then we have places like hud the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, and they'll investigate discrimination in the um, and in housing. And then we have the ADA, and that is all over the place throughout the federal government that investigates discrimination on the basis of um, disability. And so there's all these places nationally that to do this work. But the idea was we need to have a place locally that does that as well. And so that's what the human relations office does. And so it's sort of misleading of what an HRO is. Um, But what I want to remind people is the mission is creating harmonious relationships amongst the various groups within the city of Hutchinson. It's a bunch of fluff. And that's what I tell people. That's a really long, essentially what we're trying to do is create uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion in our community, and then also investigate discrimination. Uh, But it is about relationships and that's huge. So about if you had to say how much of your job is related to the investigating and how much of it is related to more of the the community work, the reducing discrimination, uh, community engagement, that kind of work. Yeah. So I'll give people some history of my office, right? For about, I think it's about a period of 10 years. This office was not funded, right? So there was, the position was there, the ordinance was there, but there was no one there doing that job, right? And um, there was someone there that would take discrimination complaints and send them to the state, but no one actually doing that role. And so for a period of 10 years, there was no complaints filed through my office. Um, And then before me, uh, the JADA was around 
and she was doing some of the discrimination complaints, but still the number was low. And I would say that's because we didn't have anyone in that office. And so right now, I think we're about 12 uh, just in 2022, which is higher than ever, right? Usually we're getting around uh, eight complaints a year, five. So we are in April and we have 12, which to me that says, you know, if you get out there and if you let people know that this service is available, we're going to get people come to us and say, hey, actually, we are so glad that you're here. And that's what I hear all the all the time. Um, but a lot of it, what I'm discovering is that the community, I think just in the past two years said, and this is true across our culture and our, in our country, we haven't done a good job of paying attention to those relationships that we are not having uh, with our community, uh, whether it's because of our biases or because the system is set up so that we can survive without uh, including a certain part of our community. Um, and we want to do better. And so what does better look like? <laughs> That's very subjective, right? But I think what the big interest in our community has been is let's look at our organization and try to do a better job of including everyone, of looking at our system and look, uh, because we can discriminate and we can have prejudices and we can exclude people, uh, even if policy says you shouldn't. Um, that can still happen. I know, it's a big surprise out there. Uh, and so, you know, it's looking at, I just got here from a minority entrepreneurship, a minority business mixer, right? Oh, tell, tell us a little bit about that. So how was the mixer and, and, what, and what brought that about? The mixer was awesome. And we had a huge turnout of people. And, you know, one of the first things that I started doing is just going to coffee with people and getting to know their story and getting to know their feedback and asking them, do you feel like you belong in this community, right? Uh, do you feel like the organizations that are around here, do they welcome you? What does it feel like to walk in into city hall and into a city council meeting, to a county commission meeting? Do you go to third Thursday events? Do you go to the chamber events? And all of a sudden I'm hearing all this feedback, right? No, I don't go. And when I go, I don't feel included. When I go, I don't feel like there's a purpose for me to be there. And so my idea is, okay, part of that is can be a personal thing, right? So me as a person, when I show up to Chamber of Men's, and, I, and I'm being honest here, I have a hard time talking to people because I don't like mingling, right? And so I'll act like I'm texting on my phone the entire time, right? So part of that is work on me. It's saying, you know what, Dave? You got to talk to people when you show up to this event and you got to put some work into it. But then on the other side, we as the organization should say, Let's look at our system and what are we doing to make sure that these folks feel included. And that's sort of the most of the work that I've been doing lately in the community where, you know, whether it's a chamber or the community foundation or Startup Hutch or USC 308 or whoever says, Dave, help us take a look at the system that we have and try to figure out ways to include more people. I love these, uh, this idea of working along other with organizations and trying to help them be more inclusive. And it sounds like a lot of your role is about building relationships, not only with members of the minority community here, but also with those organizations themselves so that you can be a resource to people and a partner as we try to address some of these issues uh, in our community. 
Now, you also have a, a commission, I believe, mm -hmm. that it supports this work and helps you. Can you speak to what the role of the Human Relations Commission is and how that fits in with your role as the Human Relations Officer? The, they sort of provide all the strategic vision for, for me. And they, right now, one of their biggest roles is saying to me, hey, Dave, this is not working in our community. This is what we're hearing, right? If you look at our boards and commissions for the city of Hutchinson, they're not very diverse, um, and but the commission is. And so I'm getting feedback on everything and they provide that uh, structure for me to know kind of where to go, what role to take in our community. And um, they also do part of making sure that we have a process in place to address discrimination. So they'll focus a lot on that. Uh, but the role of them is, you know, they've, uh, we're hearing that the X business is discriminating against X community members. Um, can you take a look at that? Right. And so they provide that direction for me. Um, and really I'm one person. And so there are eyes for me in the community to know where the work needs to happen, uh, which is a really an important part of that job. And I always tell people that, this is beyond one person and beyond one organization. Inequity in our country is a thing that has been happening for ever, even before our founding. And so it's nobody's fault that there is inequity in our community, but it is our fault if we don't do something about it, right? And and I want to remind people all the time, look, we're all on the same boat, right? Uh, there's inequity in our organization, and I'm not telling you that it's your fault, I'm not pointing a finger at you and saying, listen, Jackson, uh, you suck, man. That's not what I'm saying ever. Uh, it's not a personal thing. It's not about you. It's that we have a big, massive problem and we can do things to address it locally, uh, but it's not about pointing fingers and it's not about shaming. And so the commission plays that role of pointing fingers to me and saying, hey, this is where you need to look. So you used a term in there several times that I want to unpack a little bit and, and hopefully kind of define, which is inequity uh -huh. and um, sort of the, the flip side of inequity is equity. Right. But in, in part of my world, sometimes, you know, we think about equity in the world of finance means a very right. specific sort of thing. And, and I know that that's not the kind of equity we're not, we're talking about. We're not uh, talking about something related to finances. So can you, um, explain a little bit about what what equity looks like sure. and maybe um is that different from equality and, and and what what the difference between those two concepts is yeah you beat me to it because i think in the finance world we'll think of equity you know as capital right and what we have um as far as resources that an organization has as a whole and then when you hear it out uh, to layman, even before I got this job, right? Equity and equality, to me, uh, that's the same thing. Um, and I think we as a country relearn equity uh, and equality are different things. And so equity, the World Health Organization actually has, to me, one of the best definitions and is the absence of removable barriers, right? And so inequity then would be removable barriers that are present. Uh, in whatever part of our culture. The best way I think about this, right? Um, I went to a wedding just a few months ago to a new venue in Wichita. And, you know, when you go to big events, 
whether it's a sporting event, a concert, or a wedding, and you go to the restroom, uh, for the dudes, you get a, you go to the restroom and you get out. Uh, but usually, like, you go to a wedding and there's a huge line outside of the woman's restroom because the process of going to the restroom for women is a little different than going to the restroom generally uh, for men. And so for us, we go in there, we get out, right? And and for women, it's taking some extra steps. What this venue has done is they realize that this problem exists. In any other venue, we have an equal amount of restrooms for everyone, right? We all go to the restroom. We're all going to get the same amount of restrooms. This venue was really intelligent and they have one set of restrooms of for males and for females right next to each other. And then on the other side of the venue, there's an extra set of restrooms for women, but not for men. So there's more restrooms for women than there is for men. And that's equity. We are saying that the process of going to a restroom is completely different for these two genders. And, and you know, we can get into the whole gender thing, right? But just generally. Um, it, and so in this space, we're saying the difference here means we have to do something different. Not more, not better, different for this specific group of people that are using our spaces, right? I don't know if I can come up with a better example than that, than it's just people operate differently. I love that example because it really highlights that this equity concept is different from equality, but it's about delivering to different groups what they need rather than just delivering to every group the same thing. Right. Um, and I think that there are lots of other areas of our society where that might apply. Right. Um, and, and look, when we talk about equality, you and I, Jackson, if we had the same job, Equality would say we should get paid the same amount. And I think there are some places where equality is fair, where we need equality, right? But there are some spaces too where maybe people have been left behind systemically, right? Maybe at some point in our country's history, uh, you and I, because of the color of our skins, could buy different homes, right? So you could buy a nicer home in certain parts of the neighborhood, and I couldn't, whether if it was in Hutchinson, we didn't have redlining, right? Which is systemically, um, we had laws, but culturally, I couldn't buy certain homes in our community. And so that creates inequity. That's a removal barrier. A, soci a society we said, certain people shouldn't live in certain neighborhoods. Um, that is a removable barrier. And when we get rid of it, we have to think, well, there's a whole generation of people that were left behind. And so we don't have to do more for them. We just have to make up that part. And that's equality, looking at what has been there and how do we get rid of it and then try to help those people out because you know we say all the time, lift yourself out by the bootstraps. But these folks didn't, have, didn't even have bootstraps, right? And so just uh, trying to provide resources but acknowledging who is behind receiving those resources. Just want to make a quick uh, host note as my prerogative here that redlining is a concept that um, was very common and came down from some federal housing guidelines. I correct if I'm correct. You right. just keep nodding at me if, I'm, if yeah, I've got yeah, the, yeah. my facts right. And so uh, financial institutions were told that they couldn't 
could and couldn't uh, loan uh, money for mortgages in certain areas of communities to different people based on this color of their skin. That has since been uh, wiped out, but the historical impacts of that practice uh, for decades have continued to have influence in many, many major cities. And I think, you know, I spent a little bit of time in Chicago, and you can really see right. there how the um, People have divided up in different areas of the town, and you, you can and, go, and, and you can look back at the record and see where the red lines were on the map, and you can see exactly why that has happened. And so, if the federal government saying you shouldn't buy this, you shouldn't loan for this house, then that house is going to cost less, and their schools are going to have less funding, and their parks are going to have less funding, and their streets are getting worked. And we can go on and on, right? And so that's where where some of these things don't just affect uh, housing. It goes into everything that is built around that community. It's definitely a multi-layered and multi-faceted uh, challenge for sure. Another thing that I think is more complicated than people sometimes give it credit for is this concept of diversity. And I think a lot of the times in our uh particularly in this country, we think diversity is exclusively on the basis of race and ethnicity, which is certainly part of it. But I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to kind of a perhaps a broader definition of diversity and how that applies to your work. Right. Um, it, and this is something that we're thinking about more. And I'm grateful that we are thinking about, we just, and I hear this comment all the time, we just need some diversity. Um, and I usually say, okay. And so I'll go find you, uh, tech. 10 uh, brown people and 10 black people and 10 Asian people. And I'm going to bring them to your meetings and you're going to give them a board spot. And then what happens? Why was there exclusion? And now we bring this group of people that weren't there before. And if we didn't look at the system, if we didn't look at our own biases, if we didn't look at our history and we just brought them in, I hope that they still feel like they belong in that sp space, but th the likelihood of that happening is low. And so, yeah, d diversity is, you know, there is diversity in our community. It, to say we need more diversity to me is like, well, what do you mean we have diversity? We, we, we live in a diverse community. Sure, it's largely white, but, you know, 10%, 12% of Reno County is Hispanic. Uh, 6 8% or so is Black. And so there is diversity in our community. If your organization does not reflect the population, then there is no diversity in your group. But we have to look, I think, beyond diversity and its inclusiveness, right? Are you inclusive to diverse, diversity in your in your organization. And so that looks like looking at our policies. You know, we, we had this conversation a few weeks ago at the Art Center. Um, the Art Center used to have a mission statement that said that we, this is a space for European art. Well, who's who are we living behind in a community art center in America? And we're saying we're going to, this Hutchinson Art Center is going to try to keep a, be a space for European art. And you're looking around our community and uh, there's a lot of European background here, but there's also minorities and, and black folks and Hispanic folks. And so they're not going to feel like they're a part of the art center if we're only expecting European culture to be uh, curated in this space. And so it's looking at that. And so what did the art center do? They 
restructure their mission statement and now it's uh, I think North American art, right? And so that's changing because, you know, I wouldn't call myself European, but I can call myself North American, right? And so if I'm an artist, I feel like now there's a place for me at the art center. Um, and so that's sort of looking at inclusion. And, you know, if if I had a group uh, of 10 Hispanic men that are all 25-year-olds, 25-year-olds, that's not a diverse group. And you and I have had this conversation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and so it's about bringing in, and look, things are not going to be perfect, right? But it's, it's about making an effort so that people are included. And then when they are included, that they also feel included, mm -hmm. right? They will have to feel like they've been welcomed and right. feel like they belong. Right, because if we just give them a spot in the room and then we're not listening to their voices, we're not validating their opinions that they're bringing to the table. They're going to say, I have no place in here. I'm here, but I'm not really here because you're not including me. No, I want to pivot slightly and spend some time talking about your personal journey. And I happen to know a little bit of this story because sure. I think you gave a, a talk 20 a little while back where you talked about some of your experiences as an immigrant to this country and the impact those experiences had on you. And kind of to get us started on that conversation, I wanted to ask you, you know, when did you immigrate to the United States and, and where were you living before you moved here? So I, I moved to the U.S., what is it, 12 years ago. I was uh, 13 years old. I'm 25 now. And I, I moved from Mexico. So I arrived here to Hutchinson from Chihuahua. Okay. So... How did you how did you get how did you get from Chihuahua to Hutchinson, Kansas, of all places? Right. I was just today. Somebody said, "Why Hutchinson of all places? Why not?" Right. Uh, well, I like that. I like that answer. <laughs> and and I think, I, you know, I, I grew up in Mexico with my grandmother, and that's very common for a lot of kids where I grew up. I lived in Chihuahua, which is right south of Texas, uh, maybe about you know six hours from the border. And a lot of folks back home, you know, were growing up with grandma or grandpa or aunt and uncle because our parents had migrated, immigrated to the to the U.S. And they were here, you know, looking for a better life or more income. Um, not a lot of opportunity in, in rural Mexico, which is common for rural communities here, too. Right. And. And so what happens here in a rural community, we go to Wichita or we go to Kansas City if we don't feel like we can find opportunity here. And so it, a lot of folks came to America. And my, so my parents are here at that time. Uh, and I grew up with grandmother. And she also raised my two, my three cousins, essentially, um, whose one of them, their mother had passed away when, when they were young. And then the other one, their dad passed away when they were young. So grandma was taking care of all of us. Uh, she and I still call her my mommy, right? She's my she's my mom. She's who I saw as my mother. Um, when I was in the seventh grade, um, in two thousand nine or so, a little bit before that, the U.S. government decided they were really going to go after drug traffickers in the in the country. And you see a spike of drug related violence, gang related violence in Mexico. And my aunt was a police officer, and she, you know she's working against this and. Uh, I remember one of the comments she always says, you know, this is an international drug cartel. A local police department cannot address this huge issue. Um, and so things get pretty bad where she starts receiving death threats. 
And so she leaves town and I'm left behind with my family, my, my, my grandmother and my cousins. And I remember walking home from school one day and we knew the guy that was coming after my aunt. We knew who he was uh, because I, in that neighborhood, you know, not a lot of opportunities. So a drug cartel will say, hey, we're going to pay you $50 for each person that you get on our hit list. Essentially, that's really what is happening, right? So it's all these young kids that are not graduating from high school and don't have a job. They, they can make money out of this. And so we knew around the neighborhood who was doing all this. They were recruiting, right? And so we, I remember walking home from school one day and the guy that wanted to go after my family murdered him essentially is, is just a block away. Um, and he's talking on the phone. And he said, we're going to go in. We're going to go get him right now. Grandma and the kids are there by themselves. And I heard this and I found a different route home. And I get to my house and we called the police department. We called uh, 611, which is the Mexican 911. And, uh, I, you know, we start talking to folks there and said, you know, the same thing that happened to your aunt. We don't want that to happen to other guys in our department. So there's really not a lot we can do for you. And what we can do is we can escort you out of town. So we got on a bus and public transportation's big down there. So we got on a bus and went to another town. And we felt like my grandmother, I was 12 years old, I didn't know what I was feeling like, uh, but my grandmother felt like it would be the safest thing was to come to the US and bring all of us here. She could get a visa uh, because she was a business owner and she had some money in the bank, but we couldn't because our parents at that time were here undocumented. And so, what what's the only solution out there? It's crossing the border undocumented uh, or staying there and potentially getting murdered, right? And so, you know, I'm sure there were more options there, but to us that felt like in that moment, our life was in such jeopardy that we really couldn't come up with the answers. Um, and so my grandma takes all of us, including my aunt to, to the U.S., right? We start that process and, uh, they all get to cross the border and, and we're paying people. You can pay people $2,000 to help you cross the border. And uh, I was lucky one, I like to say. I got detained at the border. And a lot of folks might be familiar. If they were watching their TVs maybe two years ago or six years ago, um, they were watching on the news during the summer, a large influx of immigrant kids coming to the country unaccompanied, right, with no mom or dad and getting detained at shelters. So around 2009, actually, if you go look at the data, that's the first year that we were like, whoa, there's a lot of kids coming across the border. Uh, and I got sent to one of those shelters. Luckily, there was only 45 kids there around that time because I went at the right time, right season uh, during the winter that decreases. And um, there were kids from all over Central America and Mexico. And similar stories in mine. When I got detained, I got sent there and I remember I was in the same room as an eight-year-old kid. And this kid had come to the country with his two siblings who were also in the shelter from Central America, Guatemala. Uh, and I, you know, I asked him, why are you here? And we were all sat in Mopey. Oh, you know, my parents got murdered. They owned a business. And um, they were not paying a fee to the local drug cartels. That's how they operate. And so they got murdered. And then I lived with my grandparents who also owned that same business. They had a construction company. 
and they burned a business with them inside. So we have no one left. We have a nan and uncle that live in Maryland, and so we're trying to make the trek from Guatemala all the way to Maryland. So there's a lot of kids with the same story there. And somehow in there, I found some hope that there was other kids that were experiencing the same thing because I want to remind folks, I was 12 years old. I grew up with my grandmother who just gave us a perfect home and childhood. And I would say I was pretty spoiled. I was a little spoiled brat. And um, she took care of us. And you know, I did well in school. I had good friends. And all of a sudden, my world was shaken and taken away from me. Right? I remember crying about my friends. I'm going to miss my friends in my school. And I never wanted to go to the U.S., right? It's not like I woke up one day and said, you know, I want to go shopping at JCPenney. Uh, that was not that was not my intention. And all of a sudden, you know, I have to go to a new country and a new school. But I remember the night that I was detained, the first time I got detained twice, the first time they sent me back, and it is December 12th. And it, that is, if you're familiar with Mexican uh, culture, that's a big day in Mexico. It's uh, the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, which is the patron of the country. And I was an altar server growing up, uh, but I really never quite got Mary. The whole Mary thing was confusing to me. But, I, you know, my family was not there. I was with these random strangers. I remember crying about uh, my, my whole family is gone. I don't know when I'm going to see them again. My mom is gone. If I go back to Mexico, I'm going to die. I really don't want to go live with my parents because I don't know them. I haven't lived with them my entire life. I'm not interested in America. Um, and I, But I remember my prayer to Mary, through Mary, was some Catholic priest is listening out there. He'd like me to say through Mary. <laughs> uh, my par- prayer was, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's going to happen. I really want things to go back to normal, but I know that's not going to happen. And so I just need to, I just need some stability in my life. And then I try to cross the border again. I get detained, right? And I'm like, what? <laughs> Mary, I don't know about you. I don't know what you're, Mary, I need to pray to Harry Potter. I don't know. Something here is not working. I need to get connected to someone else. Um, but it was sort of a blessing that I get detained. Uh, because the, the U.S. government and the lawyers helping out volunteering, uh, actually through Catholic Charities of El Paso, are saying you can't go back to Mexico because your grandma, uh, and you shouldn't go back to your, your hometown. And the U.S. government's not going to like that. And we can't send you to your mom and dad because they're still in the process of becoming documented. Is there anybody else? So my aunt and uncle who live here in Hutchinson, uh, they graciously, I've never met them before, and they said, we'll take him. And we'll take care of him. Um, so they went and picked me up from El Paso. And I came uh, to Hutchinson. And <laughs> it was sort of, you know, I, I'm still like, what's going on here, right? Now I'm coming to a new family, away from my own family to whatever is familiar with me. Um, and it was hard, man. It was so hard to just figure out what the heck was going on. So at this point, you've been through, you've been detained, you've been through some of the immigration process. Are you, are you still undocumented at this point or have you gotten some documentation to give you permission to be in the country or you, if you want to talk about? Yeah. That. So, so that, that whole process is sort of interesting. We're saying, and at that point, 
when I leave the shelter, I'm in the system per se of we're saying, okay, you can't go back home, uh, but you're not here legally. All right. So like, you can't get health insurance. You can't work, first of all, because you're a minor, but also because uh, you don't have a social security, you don't have a work permit, nothing. Um, and But there is a promise there that maybe you can figure out a way to stay here. So when you have your refugees come here, a lot of the times they're not refugees as soon as they get here, especially the ones at the southern border. It's a process of becoming a refugee, right? And so uh, for me, the options were limited. So you can get adopted. The process is going to take about four years. I'm 12. After 16, you can't get adopted and receive uh, a green card, right? So that's that's a short window. We're, we don't want to risk that. I can't apply for political asylum because, one, Mexican citizens usually don't get political asylum. That We reserve that, reserve that to persecution, whether that's political or religious or whatever. And um, so we just couldn't make a case for that my life was at risk because of the governmental institutions. Um, and so one of the options left there, it's called a special juvenile case and it's special, right? <laughs> I mean, you're, it's, it's really hard to, uh, prove that you have, you were under tough circumstances back home. Um, essentially what we had to prove is child abandonment and my parents, God bless them. I love them now, but at some point they, they weren't taking care of me. And so that's why I ended up with my grandmother and there's a letter that they signed that grandma could take care of me. And so that's how we proved child abandonment. And, you know, that's trauma that I held in my heart forever up until maybe the last five years of coming into healing with them. Um, but that that is sort of the angle that we could go. And my and an uncle adopted me. And so I got here my seventh grade year. No English. I was just going to ask that. So, so at this point, you don't speak any English. You're going to a new school. You don't have any friends. And you're with an aunt and uncle that you don't know. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, what was that like? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if you remember what being a teenage boy was. Being, uh, being a teenage boy in middle school isn't the best when you're in a wonderful two-parent household right. and you are in this going to school with the same kids you've known for your entire life. It's yeah. rough at the best of times. Yeah, I hated everyone already, right? And now it's like I have a I felt like I had a real reason to not be happy about the world. Um and there was a lot of anxiety. Um and it was hard. It was hard trying to learn English. I remember going home every day almost just crying and cry myself to sleep all the time because I just miss my grandmother and uh, America was hard. And it's not this pretty picture that I saw in high school musical, uh, right? That was not what it looked like to me. Uh, it looked like kids making fun of me uh, because I couldn't speak English, uh, getting pushed around in the halls. I remember that very vividly. Uh, but you know, along the way, call it blessings or whatever you want to call it, whatever you subscribe to. Um, that to me, it felt like something divine out there was working out for me because I was always blessed with really important people who loved me no matter what, right? And when you ask people what gets you through trauma, what gives you resiliency, I really believe is, is that unconditional love that we can provide for someone. And so I had great friends that just were kind to help me translate. And I had a translator 
and walked around me for half of the day uh, in middle school. Miss Martha, uh, who's beloved by many Hispanics here in the community, uh, because she took care of me, right? And and she took care of us. Um, and then I had another four hours with uh, Miss Fisher, uh, who is now principal in Medicine Lodge, and she was my ASL teacher. Didn't speak any Spanish, which was really helpful because like, we had to communicate somehow, right? And uh, four classes of my day were spent with her, just helping me learn the basics. And uh, <laughs> But I do tell people, um, how did I learn English? I got a white girlfriend who could speak a lick of Spanish, right? <laughs> and uh, that was a really good strategy. Try it out if you have time sometime, uh, or don't. <laughs> but uh, just not just not yours, right? Yours. Right, yeah. yeah. But it, it was about you know forcing myself to to learn a language. And at some point, I went back. To, I remember that prayer, and it still follows me to this day, right? you know, what is normal? <laughs> what is normal? And to people who face a lot of trauma, I think dreaming up of a normal is hard, right? And so my prayer was always just stability, right? And and sometimes the system or whatever, and I look at life, life is a system, right? And so in my system at that time, there wasn't going back normal. And so stability depended on my environment, but also depended on me, right? And and so I started setting some goals. I want to speak English by the time I get to the eighth grade. And I want to be able to read it, you know, I think it was like six months to be able to talk uh, and understand. And another six months to be able to read and write, right? And and then I, I really want to have a hold on it when I get to the ninth grade in high school. And I'm still not quite there. I'm still working on uh, learning English and, and, and working on that. But that was step one, right? Trying to, I remember watching uh, YouTube videos with the lyrics, you can still go do that, of songs and singing the songs and memorizing the words and practicing the emphasis on the words and then translating them. And that's how I learned a lot of English um, and the help of my teachers too. But, you know, I remember teachers getting mad at me for talking Spanish to the kids. Well, what do you want me to talk, right? That's all I know. Um, so that was hard. And and getting accustomed to the culture here of, you know, back home, if you're walking down the street, you just say hello to everybody. Good afternoon. How you doing? And you're friendly. And I remember my cousin, where my and an uncle had younger kids, we were walking to the library because I wanted to connect to my friends back home. And that was access to internet. And I kept saying hello to people. And they're like, what are you doing? You're so weird. Why are you saying hello to everybody? What do you mean? That's what we do. No, we don't do that here in America. Right. And so just learning those little kinks about the culture uh take some time but you know my cousins who were around my age uh they were kind of my introduction to to this culture and to was what was acceptable and what wasn't then i think uh, what i remember the most was uh, when i would get made fun of for my accent um how painful it was i always you know i joke around with people and uh, i make fun of people <laughs> like we all do um, but what I don't mess around with is making fun of things that people can't change about themselves. Um, because I felt that pain and, you know, I was learning two languages, which to me seemed pretty incredible. Something I never imagined I would be able to do. And to some people that felt like it was funny, like it was weird. Right. And, and so I would watch English TV and just really uh, do the pronunciation, like really imitate what people were saying to try to work on my accent and get rid of it. 
right? And and stop listening to Spanish music and stop listening to or watching Spanish TV. Um, and that's where the inclusion comes in, right? That that for some reason I felt like I had to look like someone and talk like someone and do the same things like someone else to be accepted. Um, because otherwise I wasn't going to be accepted. Those are things that I regret now. Uh, do you feel in some ways like you lost some of your culture because of that experience? Yeah. And, and, you know, culture, you can't really lose it because it's, mm. it's always accessible. Mm. Uh, but I did, um, misplaced it maybe. Yeah. I misplaced it or I denied myself the ability to, uh, incorporate with love, but both parts of who I was, right? Because I, I'm an immigrant, right? And so immigrants all across the country will talk about, well, of course, you're going to adopt some of the things that are par not part of your culture, um, but you should be able to make that choice. You shouldn't be forced into it, right? And so um, I, I think we're all in a competition to try to be like someone. And we, we can get in these political battles all the time of who gets to be an American, right? And and who gets to be called a Hutchinsonian? Um, and I always make the argument that we should try to give an opportunity to everyone who wants to be a Hutchinsonian, right? And and not exclude them. Of course, that looks different for who gets to be an American because we should have laws. And we should make the, the process uh, somewhat uh, really look at who we are bringing into this country. Um, but, you know, it took for my seventh grade year to my sophomore year for me to finally know that I was going to be able to stay for good in this community. Um, and it took paying really expensive lawyers and paying really expensive fees to immigration for me to finally be here. I, I want to call some attention to that because I think that w would it be fair to say that that experience is itself even a little bit atypical in the sense that it was faster and easier because you were well-resourced to get that done? You yeah, that's and, fair? and so if I wasn't well-resourced, the likelihood of me speaking to you and Hutchinson right now is low. And in fact, even if I wasn't well-resourced, right, the likelihood of me getting accepted through a special juvenile case um, is slow, uh, that I wouldn't be here right now. And I'm not saying that to tell folks, you're very lucky that I'm here. I'm saying that to remind folks that there's a lot of folks in our community who will never get to know fully because they are terrified that that part of their identity gets out. That if at some point you and I find out their immigration status, they will no longer feel safe. And yet, they're here contributing to our community. Uh, they're as Hutchinsonians as you and I are. Um, and, and so that's sort of scary for me to think about. You know, we have a bunch of folks here that are part of our community and are keeping our community thriving, but they don't feel like they are. As a community... What do you think that we could do? What can your office help us to do to make people feel more included? It is, you know, I, one of the things that I see us doing are things like trying to celebrate things like Cinco, the Cinco de Mayo activities and the festival that happened last fall. 
Um, do you see events like that and activities like that as a way to start to try to build some bridges and, and to help people feel included? Sure. And I think I've been in really interesting meetings with Southwest Bricktown folks who keep saying, we don't just want to be known for just doing throwing really awesome parties, right? We want to be known beyond that. And, and I, yeah, I think celebrating those things is important, right? Like I always kind of roll my eyes when people are like, we should have a multicultural festival. Uh, because if you're just having the festival alone, I think uh, that's not enough, right? And and we should be doing something beyond that. Um, you know, I, I think I was lucky and that is not enough, right? Uh, that I was very fortunate that I got involved in student council and communities that care at that time, which is now Rice Up Reno. And I got, I had really awesome teachers like Janet Davis and Donna Davis, who people know in this community, who uh, despite all the evidence to the contrary, made me believe in myself and made me feel like I could too do great things. And then it got me through it. Um, and it, by getting me through it and making me believe I got connected with people like Harry Jackson, Mayhew, and getting connected to the Community Foundation and other folks in it, Ryan D, other folks in the community who also celebrated who I was and said, Dave, you belong here and we want to know who you are. But I think that I was the exception to that. I think that there were some kids in my class in high school who looked at me and said, and this is, this is a battle that I had always for the white kids that I was hanging out with in student council in Rice Sabrino, I was a Mexican kid. And for the Mexican kids that I that helped me learn English, they, I was too white. I was doing th things that were too white. That, why are you doing things that the white kids are doing? And I would ask them, why aren't you? Uh, who said that, that that running for student class president belongs to white kids? Well, we don't think we could do that. I don't think they'll let us. <laughs> Nobody's keeping you from it. And, you know, that that's the exception, right? That somehow I got connected to some people, uh, but we're not doing that enough. And, you know, I think is a lot of times we just kind of, throw our hands up in the air and say, well, we just can't connect with the community. And I want to say, if you can't, let me help you, right? And let me help you get connected to, to different groups and look beyond your own circles. Look beyond your own circles. That I think that's the best thing that we can do as a community. If we really want to impact our inclusion efforts and we really want to make people feel like they belong, is looking be beyond our own circles and saying, I'm not asking you to go best friends. You don't need to best, be best friends with me at every event that I go to. But I'm asking you to make an effort to get to know people. Uh, look, I, one of the things I hear all the time is boards can't be diverse because we, we just can't find people to, to fill these boards. Have you seen my commission? It's pretty diverse. And how did that happen? Because we've created a history of that. We created a policy of that. And also, I'm getting to know people all the time who can join those boards, right? And so it's really just being conscious about it. And to me, it's getting rid of that attitude that 
we can't do anything about it. Yes, you can. It's on you. You can take ownership of that. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be making some mistakes. And so what? Uh, it's not your fault that your place is not inclusive, but it is your fault if you don't do something about it. I love that. That's uh, the way that you and the way that you're talking about that brings together both the systemic nature of some of these challenges, but also all of our collective personal responsibility to address that as well. It's like it goes both ways to open up our circles. We need folks who feel like they aren't included now to get out of their shell a little bit maybe and, and do some of what you described you were able to do, going out and getting involved. But we also need to create environments where we're welcoming to new people who come in. Um, whatever that means uh, in terms of new people, that might mean because they look different from you, that might mean because they worship differently from you, or you know maybe they've got a slightly different you know way that they live their life, or maybe they're just from a different place and they're a new person to Hutchinson. If we can be open and inviting to people, then we'll have a more diverse community and we'll all benefit from that. All right. One question that I'm going to try to get you out of here on, uh, so that we can have a one part episode, <laughs> Dave, uh, since the only other time I've done this, we had to break it into a two parter is if there was one thing that you wanted people in our community to know about your work in the human relations office and what we as a community can do to be more welcoming and inclusive to all people in our community, what would that be? Oh, Jackson, <laughs> one thing that we could do to be more inclusive as a community. I don't know that I have the right answer to that because I've been doing this to try to get people to do something about inclusivity around equity. And as I told folks, I just came from this minority entrepreneur, minority business mixer. And the energy that I felt in that room from connecting with other folks. Are you getting the train in there? Okay. And, and the energy that I was getting in that room from all those folks. Just knowing that we made this event for people to come and there were faces that I didn't recognize where did where did that come from it was a my idea was in my head because people came to me and said we really care about this and so then in turn i had to really care about this and i don't know what i need to do what you and i can do to convince people that this is important but at the end of the day is about caring do you care? Do you want? Do you really want to have a place where people feel included? Because you, you, even if you're not a minority, you know what that feels like. You know what it feels like when everyone in your office gets invited to the work birthday party and you don't. You know what it felt like when all, you found out in high school that all your friends had a group chat and you weren't part of it. You know what it felt like when everybody got called to play in the basketball team and you didn't. And you don't have to be a minority to experience exclusion. But when exclusion becomes something that people can't change about themselves, that really impacts people on a different level. And so there's all sorts of people walking around this world 
in our community in Hutchinson who've been excluded and have felt excluded. And they walk around with this trauma, this pain that we'll never get to know and experience unless we have some empathy, unless we can come down and say, you know what, I have felt excluded too. Because you have, I guarantee you that you have. And you know how horrible that feeling is. I don't know what I need to do to get you to care about it, but to reflect on your own experiences around it and to look within and say, is this important to me? And if not, we got to do some talking. We got to have a chat about, maybe we need to connect on a deeper level. But I think it's about empathy. I think it's about tapping into what has impacted us when we've been excluded and how we, I don't want anybody to feel that way. I lose sleep knowing that there are people in our community walking around without trauma because you and I have felt excluded. And Jackson, maybe I'm just making that assumption, but haven't you felt excluded in the past? I I absolutely, I'm sure I have felt excluded in the past. And it feels uh, and, horrible. And, and oh man, the, the group chats. <laughs> um, but thank you for sharing that. I think empathy is one of the things that we all need that relates to this work. And I think it relates to, to a lot of different challenges that our community and our country faces. You know, if we can develop some more empathy for people who don't think the same way that we do or don't look the same way that we do then I think that we can uh, all make a little bit more progress towards a better country and, it, and a more towards a more perfect union. That's right. Together. And that's my whole thing. And, and I think that one of the ways that we develop that empathy is by sharing our stories and by talking to each other and listening to each other. Yeah. So for that, uh, thank you for taking a little bit of time and coming down to chat with me today. It's a very American thing. That's what I want people to walk away with. It's a very American thing to make our communities more perfect. I agree. Here at That Podcast in Hutch, we like to promote local events that are submitted to us. We learned recently about an upcoming table read of a film script called No Place Like Hutch, a new story from Hollywood, all about Hutchinson, Kansas. Featuring films, salt mines, and everything else that makes this town unique, the Fox will be hosting a live table read of this special event. With performances by the local community, this sneak peek is for one night only, on Saturday, May 1st at 6 p.m., it's open to everyone with free popcorn, but rated PG-13, so parental advisory is suggested. If you have a community event that you would like shared by that podcast in Hutch, please share it with us by sending an email to thatguyinhutch at gmail.com. Thanks. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast in Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyinhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyinhutch at gmail.com 
to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.